from the carpet the bodies have been taken out of the dump and christmas is almost upon us as halloween leaves welcome to this in between seasons episode of the film around podcast i'm richard drum and i'm jonathan victory and what an in between season it is we've a lot of <laughs> a very big... news anchor of you it's a well it's a week where we have these big shot oscar contenders coming out all That's packed right. into the one week this last week of november so uh, we're gonna get to them soon enough uh, what f- uh, film news is there anyway well, in a move that really no one asked for, apparently they're remaking Memento, that often talked about, but not really that well-known Christopher Nolan movie from 13 years ago? Yeah, 2000, 14. starring Guy Pearce as a man with short-term memory loss, so the uh, structure of the film is that it'll kind of go backwards, and uh, that's if that sounds like a mind-bending, interesting experience of a movie to you, it is. Go and watch it. Um, it's not but there are quite some... as good as everyone says, but it is, it's decent. Uh, the thing is, it's decent enough that somebody else has bought the rights to Christopher Nolan's film Memento, and uh, which was based on a short story written by his brother Jonathan Nolan, with mm-hmm. whom he writes many of his screenplays. So this just is a really weird move. Like, why they would be remaking this movie that's so recent and not that well known? And did the studio own the rights, or? Uh, I think it was a small. Because <clears throat> I can't imagine either the Nolan selling those rights willingly mm. for a remake. You can tell by my voice we are heading into winter now. It's quite cold here in this uh, basement uh, film Ireland keep us trapped in. Um, I'm trying to find out. It's, yeah, producers who have bought the rights anyway are Andrea Irvolino and Monica Bacardi of Ambi Pictures. And their, their press release is all about just how good the first one is and how everyone loves it. And it's great. It's an unassailable classic masterpiece. So why the hell would you try and make it? They're They're saying like, uh, Bacardi says we intend to stay true to Christopher Nolan's vision and deliver a memorable movie that is every bit as edgy, iconic, and award-worthy as the original. And uh, Irvalino was saying people who've seen Memento ten times still feel they need to see it one more time. This is a quality we feel really supports and justifies a remake. The bar is set high thanks to the brilliance of Christopher Nolan, but we wouldn't want it any other way. Now let's go back to that point of rewatching equal equaling justification for remake in a completely deranged sense i can see and almost appreciate that logic but no people don't want to no i I, look i love psycho an awful lot i've watched psycho so many times it doesn't mean i want to watch the gus van sant shot by shot remake let alone a a reinterpretive remake of it I'm wondering now, though, if maybe the, the twist will be that it's, it's an all-female cast remake of Memento. Just to cash in on the public support for such endeavours. Um, you know what? At least that would be different. At least there would be, like, a spin on it, and it would be, if they're doing it something really different, different with casting. it... Uh, are you aware there are two, not one, but two Indian-language remakes? Of Memento? Yeah. From the year 2005 and again in 2008, presumably in different languages, because India has dozens upon dozens of active languages. Well, see, that at least makes Gajini sense. is what it was called, Gajini. Uh, well, and that sense. makes sense because it's for... Because Bollywood is its own 
film market. It's a billion people in India, so they have a, they have plenty of films in their self-sustaining film industry. If no, Hollywood but also makes a movie, like, the logic is usually that Americans are too lazy to read subtitles, so we make foreign movies in English. So I can only guess that the same logic applies to other countries. Yeah. Everyone's lazy. Um, so that makes sense, but this this whole thing of just, yeah, we're remaking this movie because we like it. Is but that's not why they're remaking it. They're remaking it because it's a Christopher Nolan film. So I can only assume in the trailer for this remake we'll be getting based on a film from the and then a massive you know block capitals, the director of the Dark Knight trilogy and Interstellar. If that one's still popular by then, like, I, who's this for? Because people that have seen Memento don't give a shit about a remake, whereas a lot of people haven't even heard of Memento. So there's no brand recognition here. It's not like it's a really famous well-known movie through christopher nolan's name there is i guess it's yeah, nolan's like, name there is but he won't be involved with this i He'll mean have nothing to do with it i hollywood is going through this thing and, and there are people who argue like oh the, hollywood always does remakes and reboots but like it's especially gotten intense this last decade mm. where every intellectual property that's even like vaguely rings a bell with people is going to get remade and revisited but and do you think it's... memento does ring a bell with people do you think if you go to the, the i hate saying this the man on the street and ask him did you enjoy 2000s memento by christopher nolan sorry guy pierce and that creepy guy he'd go what i'm sure how some... dare you please leave me alone through jokes from seth MacFarlane shows or south park or rick and morty i mean is it a pop culture reference point in that respect that people will think kind so. of like, maybe there might have been some seth MacFarlane jokes about it. i can't think of any south park or rick and morty jokes so. i suppose a comparable film which was out a year earlier was fight club because that was also supposed to be this edgy slightly arty well, that movie. has full cult following though. that's very well known even people that haven't seen that movie have heard of it and even though it is a, a quote-unquote cult movie with its obscure actor bradley pitt in it it kind of it has that going for it as well whereas mm. guy pierce wasn't as well known at the He's time still not and, that well known. yeah so this is just a very weird story it's just like why mm. well from one hollywood bullshit thing to another cinema-based bullshit thing uh, the odeon brand the odeon cinema chain has decided to inflict and yes i say inflict a blockbuster tax on its ticket prices what this means is any movie that is justifiably big enough that they can guarantee bums on seats, they will now charge extra for, purely for shits and giggles. Now, their logic in the press release I saw was along the lines of, oh, but it'll encourage uh, people to shop around, whatever that means in a cinema sense, or to look for off-peak times. But they don't want that. They want everyone in there on opening weekend. So I, they're purely doing it because they know they can. They know Star Wars is out, Hunger Games is out, Bond is out. Let's just whack on an extra euro on every single ticket, and no one can argue against us because we own this shit. And, and this has already been introduced. Yeah, Spectre was the first one, I think. And they tried framing this as in saying, like, um, customer support support the littler film that's out. Like, say, but for example, we're going to be reviewing a movie called Tangerine. Like, they'll mm. say, this blockbuster tax will help movies like Tangerine. Because people will go, ooh, I- I'm going to pay, like, two euro less to see this other film I wasn't Except even aware was out. that, that logic would be well good if they were showing Tangerine. They probably aren't, because I know when Spectre first released, there was a cinema in Bur- Birmingham that had it on 45 times in one day. That's probably most of the screens taken up. <laughs> Where are these little small independent films going to be shown? Tell me that, Odeon spokesperson. That's this whole other part of the equation, like that it's it's so disingenuous of them to not give a platform to the other movies that struggle to find an audience that don't have brand mm. recognition. So um, It would almost make more sense to charge extra for the artist movies, even though that would be like a horrible idea. But it would make more sense than this. I mean, okay, business-wise, this makes a lot of sense. But it's just so nakedly, greed-inducingly... Not greed inducing greed induced juice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, um 
I, I can Jeez. see you're you're struggling to find the words to describe this, it's and really I guess for me, me for me, I try not to be cynical, but you know the world just keeps giving us stuff like this. Um, I, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be cynical. If there is a benefit of the doubt that could be given to them, uh, you know, I'm I'm yeah. just racking my brain trying to think what it is. This just seems really odd. Adding this extra charge for well, no reason. The only benefit of doubt I can see in terms of the way they're framing it is. I know I will often avoid a film on its opening weekend because I, I hate people and I don't like seeing a big packed cinema. So, I mean, the extra charge on that would maybe make me question it for half a second longer. Mm, do I really want to? But like, that's that's nonsense. That's not worth charging people money for. That's just... Ugh. One might say it's trolling. Speaking of trolling, Jonathan, was there another trolling-related storyline? There was. Storyline in this fiction that we call reality. I can tell you now, because um, apparently there is a quirk of the uh, British Film Board, where uh, in order for a film to be legally released in the UK, like in with a cinema release, um, you have to go to the British Board of Film Classification to get an age rating mm-hmm. and so on. Apparently, this is very cost prohibitive, which means nothing for these big behemoth blockbusters, but for a small independent filmmaker in the UK, apparently they have to charge... Um, I'm just trying to find the figure now because I have a story in front of me about a British filmmaker called uh, Charlie Line, L-Y-N-E. They are making a 14-hour movie about paint drying called Paint Drying. Uh, They have a crowdfunding campaign. Very innovative title there. They have a crowdfunding campaign with which, you know, through which you can donate money to this project because apparently, and I'm I'm not making a word of this up, this is... um, the, the the quirk of the British Film Board is that it, the mo- longer your movie is, the more it costs to get it rated. So what they're trying to do is make it as... So they're aiming for 14 hours, but they might yeah. have like two hours of footage so far, or, or whatever. I, I, or I think they may only be able to afford enough for, say, seven hours of footage. But they already have it shot of just a wall with paint drying. And to troll the British Film Board for the error of their ways yeah. to show them the error of their ways they're going to make them sit through every minute of just nothing happening just paint drying on a wall which is the cliche uh, and I read this story and I'm just kind of thinking like this guy is a troll it's just so obnoxious but you read more and more about like whatever the rates are and it's just yeah it does sound a bit like excessive that the the Submission fee is £101.50 sterling per film with an additional charge of £7.09 for each minute of the film's length. So that would typically run to... oddly specific. I know. It's thousands of pounds per film. So um, if if you're trying to even self-distribute your film, though, you still need to pay a few thousand to get the British Film Board to watch it. So it's... um... That's not actually as much as I was expecting the number to be, but it is still needlessly expensive uh so charlie line is running this campaign until december 16th if you're interested in looking that up and supporting this very kind of you know weirdly specific stand mm-hmm. against a policy which um i suppose does sound a, a bit unfair if you frame it like that because i mean if your if your budget for distribution and marketing everything is only a few thousand most of that's going to be eaten up just getting your foot in the door getting the british film board to watch it so i just i just think it is a is it is a funny image of just having the censors having to sit there knowing full well what it is. Uh, so I, I don't know whether that aggressive strategy is going to pay off for them or not. Maybe a strongly worded letter might have been better. Well, I, I feel know. like he needs to put a bit of doubt in their minds before he shows it to them because if they go in knowing it's a 14-hour paint drying movie, they just won't watch it. 
But if he kind of goes, well, you'll assume it's 14 hours of paint drying. There could be some hardcore pornography just slipped in, Tyler Durden style. There's various intervals, and they won't know until they check it. <laughs> that would actually be great. It's like those 10-hour YouTube videos where yeah. they just loop something over and over again. You wonder, like, do they put something three hours and five minutes in, or, like, is that how terrorists communicate? Or I don't want to give terrorist I think, ideas. Um, I think some videos do have, like, Easter eggs in them, yeah. I better stop there and uh, move on to... Our final piece of news for this edition. It's a heartwarming, Friends wonderful and neighbors, story. Joyful joy. The Lord has come again. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Neronan, is, is here. Brooklyn may be getting a spin-off TV show. Our Excuse Lord, me right. while I go hang myself in the nearest closet. Lord Christ Neronan? <laughs> I couldn't think of a way of incorporating her name in there. Is that the Gaelicized form of her name, Neronan, or is it Neronan, as in her birth name is Ronan? And she's now the Irish film industry's equivalent of um, our saving grace. I mean, because, I mean, as as we covered last time... I think time, I just choked on my own bile and vitriol there, but yeah. Look, previously we covered Brooklyn. Um, and yet again. I, I, I highlighted how Saoirse Ronan's performance is a very strong part of that movie, and that's what seems to be... a perfectly adequate component in a perfectly adequate machine. Well, this perfectly adequate film is doing great box office by Irish standards. Mm-hmm. It's the most successful Irish film at the Irish box office since Michael Collins. Not a competition there. Um, but it's not just in Ireland. It's making an impact. Apparently, um, the kind of movers and shakers that saw it at the Sundance Film Festival uh, were so impressed by it, they are considering movers and shakers at Sundance All right, Film Daddy-o. Festival. And <laughs> Go back to your disco ticks. A Brooklyn TV show is possibly in the works. Director John uh, Crowley confirmed, who also directed Intermission, and he directed two episodes of True Detective Season 2. Um, but So Brooklyn is getting international attention, possible Oscar buzz around it. Director John Crowley says there's a plan in the pipeline, but it's early days and there's no there's no talent attached yet. Okay, that seems odd. That they made this announcement, but they're kind of just like, phrase. it's very preliminary. No talent at- Oh, come on. <laughs> I what I imagine this is it, it wouldn't be just more about Saoirse Ronan's character. What I imagine it it would be like the sort of periphery. But what about characters. all those you know very deep and well threaded plot lines that they set up but didn't pay off in the movie? All that plot, so much plot, and I don't, detail see, and characterization. Either they will go back to uh, Nora Jane Noon, what's her name from Arrow, uh, the girl from Kiavan. Um, all these other secondary characters. Oh, what if Julie Walters is back in it? That, okay. that might make it worth watching. I would almost give it a pass on that front. Although they need to change her accent, but yes, that would be okay. Because, um, I mean, she was a good part of that movie, but like, still ridiculous. But it's just, I mean, it's the idea that they would either maybe go back to these secondary characters, see what moving to Brooklyn was like for them, or they'll just take that sort of concept about emigration. So it could be about completely new Irish characters, or they might just go and explore other ethnicities also moving to Brooklyn at that time. Um, they, absolutely, they absolutely will not do the latter. If their success of this film is just tourist board marketing, the, the Irishness of it, they will not in a million years do a show about other ethnicities. Because that would be actually, you know, risking being interesting. I'm just looking forward that if this does get made, um, I'm not watching, watching it. it with no, you. No, I'm not watching it. Oh, I would have to see your reaction to it. Cause, I refuse. Um... <laughs> Oh dear. Um, oh, so I mean, now that Brooklyn is a big success, um, I'm kind of reflecting on it a bit more, and I'm, I'm uh, and I remembered saying in the last one that it's fine. It doesn't entirely work as a movie, and you thought like that was an odd thing to say in the midst of a recommendation. Of yeah. it, but reflecting on it more, 
Um, the story of it, it just it, it could be so much more interesting. Inverted commas around the, the word story there. I mean, that's the thing. It's just kind of, okay, there are moments of resonance because it is a story about emigration, but in terms of an actual storyline, it's like a love triangle that kicks in two-thirds of the way through yeah. the movie where there's no tension because Donald Gleeson is very strange in the movie and not at all a viable romantic partner. Um, what if, as in the novel Brooklyn, uh, his character shows up at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. So it's like an on and off, off again, on again thing with them. So that makes more sense why there'd be a bit of tension about, oh, will she stay in Ireland? What if instead of deciding, will we spoil it? Or I'm just, I'm just saying like, if, well, if, if statistically her, everyone's already seen if it. If her so. reasons for leaving Ireland weren't just, oh, I don't really like it here anymore. And it was more about like, um, she has been forced to leave because of theocracy and because of judgment and stigma and stuff, that would be a lot more dramatic. You know, it just feels like it's adequate. It's a nice Christmassy movie to watch, but there's not much going on in it in terms of no. uh, tension or investment in the characters. I'm I'm just never saying this now. I, I mean, I still think it's fine. It's just a bit bland, but uh, I think during our previous review... I felt like defending Review is it. a charitable word to call I had to defend it because rant. the vitriol coming from you was just unheard of. I, I've never seen him that angry, you know. Um, so, I, I don't know. We, what was interesting, though, is since then we've seen similar films. <clears throat> we'll get to this later on. Aesthetically yes. or thematically or whatever. So, we might bring in Brooklyn occasionally, but we're going to assume lots of people have seen Brooklyn going forward, perhaps. Would seem that way. Mm. So yes, it's all your fault. When that TV show comes out and you all kind of go, oh, it's all right, I suppose, but keep watching it anyway in RTE, because RTE, of course, will show this and probably fund it. And when they keep doing this and we're five seasons in and everyone's like, that shite's still going? This is all your fault. All of you. If it's just you, Stan. If it's just middling, bland um, TV, though, how is that like, this is all your fault? Like, this is a serious thing. Like, okay, so it's not like the best thing ever it wasn't like i still don't think it was terrible uh, you know i just like no but isn't bland worse than terrible no it depends because sometimes terrible can be funny like something can That's be so I mean, bad yeah. it's fascinating to watch but you know other times you know something terrible is just terrible and obnoxious to watch and um I mean, I know, at like... least with bland things at least you can discuss like the potential of ideas in there and what might have been and that teaches you a bit more about storytelling um but I suppose if you don't work in the film industry and you're just a, a, a punter who just wants to enjoy movies, that's uh, not much good. But with Brooklyn, I feel like, like it, it's far from the worst film out this year. And yet I've probably hated the most of anything else I've seen. Like Transporter Refuel is objectively a much worse, significantly more misogynistic movie. But I'd, I'd rather watch that again than Brooklyn. Brooklyn was just, it hurt my soul it, in a way that things don't always. It, it just grated on me like my skin was the chalkboard and it was the nail. It was it was not a pleasant viewing experience. And Saoirse Ronan's acting is very overrated in terms of her... You she's did good. not just air quote acting. <laughs> she's, no, she's good, but she's always good. But she doesn't stand out as being better here than she was in, say, Byzantium or Hannah. Like, she's she's always solid and that's all she was here the script wasn't much she wasn't given much to do with it she was fine it doesn't deserve an oscar for it anyway anyway um over the weekend i was at the vfx summit at google headquarters in dublin and this was a gathering of people uh working in visual effects and animation from all over the world there were some really interesting talks really cool people there uh here's just a sample of some of the people i got to speak to I'm joined now by Paul Timpson, um, an Irish visual effects 
expert. You have a lot of experience and this, with like such a distinguished career, it seemed to be going quite well for you overseas. So mm. uh, you're coming back to Ireland now. Why, mm. why on earth would you do that? Uh, well, I mean, I, I have a strong belief that the people and the wealth of talent in Ireland is a great opportunity uh, to, to come back to. And also as well, I, my business plan is to, is to combine Canada, UK and Ireland and have leads, work and sources coming from those areas, those markets. So Ireland is going to be the major uh, centre of operations, but we're throwing the radar quite wide. I'm, I'm not really scared of travel, so you know, it, I will be travelling a lot in the early years. Um, uh, but to uh, our branch in London and, and hopefully further afield. So Ireland, I'm seeing the, the talent base is there. We can use it, you know, and, and hopefully give back to Ireland as well. Is it? Um, I was wondering then, what is it about Ar Ireland? What is it Ireland can offer in terms of animation and visual effects? And um, mm -hmm. do you, do you think there's a good talent base or a good uh, support structure for the talent base? Here? I think that there's a great positivity behind the industry. I think that the on terms of the straight animation side, you it's got almost like an oversupply of really really good people because you've got Bally from the Mary. You've got a lot of people with the real core skills of animation coming out who are really highly qualified. I mean, I went to Bournemouth with the MSC there and all that, and I, it's on a par with, with them, I think it's here. They're pretty good animators coming out. My brother studied here uh, in Ballyfermot with Gary Timson and uh, you know, Dean Dubois, who directed How to Train Your Dragon, is uh, worked in Ballyfermot Animation College as well. Mm. I, I knew him in DreamWorks, so the history of dumb animation is, is pretty enviable. So, but anyway, even apart from that, the visual effects industry is burgeoning because people are starting now to get into Houdini, the effects and tech side of it. Uh, windmills really expanding on, on that side, they need you know, uh, a lot of people in the, on the tech side. So I, I can just see it sort of getting over that cusp where it becomes more tech as well as the animation. So I, I would love to be part of that. Andy Hayes, the head of effects at Framestore, a huge uh, visual effects company in London that works on lots of Hollywood films. Um, so, so what would be some of the biggest challenges in terms of animation characters uh, in visual effects? Biggest challenge in animating characters? I guess, um, I guess the thing that crops up with us is trying to make the characters sit into their environment and make them look believable. So if we have a digital character, some of the invisible stuff you might notice in the film we have to add, such as and maybe the, the, how they interact with the ground, how they, how they interact with like, things around them, maybe like they're in a forest or something, how, how they interact with the leaves and the plants around, around them. Um, is dust kicked up? Do they interact with this? So if it's a, a realistic character, um, which Framestore does quite a lot of those, then one of our problems is to try and make it look like they're realistically in that environment. And so the animator's job isn't, doesn't stand out, and so the whole thing looks more real. Because obviously a lot of our work is to do with photorealism. I suppose that was a related question that you're also animating these backgrounds so how do you make the two mesh together? Uh, you, it's down to the supervisor to figure out what's, what's appropriate to be done digitally as opposed to what's appropriate to be shot realistically um, so in some places we'll, we'll actually have a set environment that's filmed in a, stu in a, in a, in a studio and then we'll take away bits from it where uh, say a digital character might interact and then we'll replace them digitally later on um, and it's up to the, our lighting guys to do a really good job to make sure that it's lit in a similar fashion that was actually in the place where the original plate was made. So we capture all the lighting information when we shoot the stuff. And then it's up to our compass to then take that lit information and then embed it into the plate. And like I said, add the sort of subtle things that we, we bring to it, like little bits and pieces being kicked around or a bit of mist or something, just to kind of make the whole thing gel together. I'm joined by Professor Stuart Samida, who's worked on films like Kung Fu Panda, Ratatouille, The Lion King. Um, 
you've worked on some great animations. Uh, what exactly is it you do, though, for people who may not have heard of you? Well, I am, uh, by training, a scientist. I'm a biologist. Uh, I teach and study uh, animal um, uh, anatomy and movement. And that is something that is, of course, of interest to students who are in, in medical studies and veterinary studies and things like that. But it is also something that's very uh, important to animators because animation is all about movement. You're acting and you're moving, uh, whether it's a person's face or their body or whatever it happens to be, or a character could be an animal or even a creature that's built out of parts that we know from other creatures. You're making things move. And so movement uh, and, and those kinds of things are key components of my study, but they're also key components of the way we build uh, animation and, and VFX-style films. And uh, if they were creating a creature from scratch, is it often just taking different bits of existing animals, like if you're creating a dragon or something, you would look at That's right, and it's, 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 it's a great question, because what usually happens is that's where students always want to start. They always want to start with a, a cloven-hooved creature with massive swords and crazy things like that, but in the end, really... All of those creatures, whether they're dragons or centaurs or, or, or creatures of your imagination, are usually built out of parts that we already know about. Maybe it's, it's the hoof of a, of a cow or, the, or the, the body of a lion or a horse or, some, or, the, or the wings of a bat. Really, in every case, what we're doing is we're taking a part from something that we can actually study. And so when we create creatures, we're creating them out of, no pun intended, creatures about whom we already know. And if we do that, we then have to select carefully for where we put them together. And that helps drive the, the decisions we make about the rest of their movement. I spoke to graphic designer Annie Atkins, who worked on the Oscar-winning production design team for the Grand Budapest Hotel. She's also working on Steven Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. Well, how did you get involved in the projects in the first place? Did your work catch Wes Anderson's eye, or was it through the production design team you got involved in it? Um, I had worked on a lot of historical dramas, TV shows that we make here in Ireland. So I had a portfolio of things like telegrams and newspapers and cigarette packaging from the turn of the last century. Um, and Wes was looking for someone with some experience in that kind of thing because his film was set in the 1930s. Um, so when I worked on the box trolls, I was recommended to him by Nelson Lowry, who was the production designer on Fantastic Mr. Fox. Okay. Um, and he put me, he put Wes, Wes's producers in touch with me and then I was able to show a portfolio of relevant pieces to him, really. I was on the set for Penny Dreadful as an extra and I could see, like, they, they have Victorian Chinatown now, so they have stalls with lots of detailed props and food and stuff, like, behind the street that mm -hmm. would never be seen on camera. So, like, often the other extras would discuss, you know, why would they put so much effort into stuff that won't be seen on camera? So dur during the talk you just gave, you had a very interesting sort of approach to that whole question of, you know, why put so much work into all these small details? Yes, because we're not always designing directly for the cinema audience. We have to design for the actors and the director and the people on the set in order for them to do their work in. Um, and also, like, it's our job to pay attention to detail, so every department has an attention to detail and if some departments started skipping over that stuff then the sets would begin, would begin to look quite empty. Joined by Aidan Gibbons, uh, a director at The Mill, virtual reality, like as developing it as a form of entertainment, that, that is definitely visionary. So in terms of how, how do you get from doing an animation degree to then sort of seeing that there's this virtual reality technology being developed and thinking, oh, there might be something in this. Like, How, how did you discover that? Well, really, it only 
it's it's hit the mill and myself in the last um, couple of years where you know there were some devices like the Oculus Rift that were kind of bubbling away and there was lots of interest uh, lots of interest there and then the Google Cardboard came out and again it was still very kind of gimmicky but I think it was the the purchase of Oculus and you know the big guys getting involved that's really made this the industry wake up and show us that this is actually a, a new medium. It's a new frontier and I'm just kind of, are you in a similar situation to what the Lumiere brothers must have been in like when they were introducing films, like is there going to be a market for people coming to watch films is it kind of, uh, is there anyone kind of looking into market research for what the potential of this technology is? I'm sure there are um, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely positive that there's film studios who are investing a lot of money into VR and we're, we're yet to know what they are are, are planning for that. My my guess is they're maybe planning on more streaming, so streaming uh, cinema content to a headset, perhaps. Hmm. Um, but yes, I definitely think there is uh, scope in exploring that realm of getting people to an event to enjoy it together. I mean, you do have experiences such as the Void, um, which is essentially you run around a walled uh, park with a gun and you're shooting your mates, but <laughs> in the headset, those walls are are like an alien ship wall or something like this and that really makes you feel there and it's a 4D experience so when you get shot your chest kind of vibrates so there's a kind of theme park side to it I would totally do that absolutely that sounds like so much fun no I need to do it myself (laughs) I'm joined by Mark Ardington a visual effects artist with Double Negative that's right yes and uh, you worked on uh, a very favourite film of mine from this year Ex Machina Uh, can you tell us about the work you did on that film uh, yeah, uh, my role was as a CG lead, and um, I did the technical side behind how, well, making Ava, the AI robot at the centre of the story, um, making her come to life in terms of the, the technical stuff. So the design and all of that was came about through uh, Alex Garland and his team of you know concept artists and stuff like that. And then they worked with um, Andrew Whitehurst, our VFX supervisor. Um, and Alex and uh, Andrew got on just... They were just on the same wavelength in terms of what they were trying to achieve in terms of the design and uh, the creative choices they made were just great. And what I did was to help execute the technical side to actually make the rig um, that, of Ava uh, and some of you know, the characters and things in the film uh, to help the body trackers uh, and the renderers and all of that. How do you get the sort of translucent quality to it, where you can sort of see through her torso and you, you sort of maintain see the bit of the background as they're moving along and everything? Like it's okay. just all looks so seamless. Uh, <laughs> there are many many people involved in doing that. So we have artists who do uh, um, rubber out areas of her out and then painting the background or tracking backgrounds and stuff like that. Uh, so then we're also you've got people like Andrew who's actually. Um, Andrew Whitehurst led all of the, the visual development and the look and worked out because he, he knew kind of some of the intentions that uh, Alex was looking for about how the light would play on the mesh and how much we'd see uh, and they all they worked together to to kind of uh, through various iterations of you know would there be little lights on her what would be distracting what would not how much they want to see through how much they didn't um, a key thing that uh, Alex Garland was really was interested in was to be able to use the costume and the lighting to help tell his story. Um, and what I mean by that is that at times he wanted you to see her, well, essentially he wanted you to, to take Ava as a robot, as an android. But then in certain lighting conditions, he wanted to the mesh to be able to fill in. And so it would, 
make her feel more like a, a girl or a woman yeah. um, because of the way that the lighting was bouncing and you couldn't see through it so much and stuff like that, the way that the light played on her. Yeah. Um, because he wanted to, he's playing with the, the conceptions of is she a robot, is she real? So I'm joined by Minister John O'Sullivan, uh, Minister for Education and Skills. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, why are you here today at uh, Google Headquarters for the VFX Summit? Um, I'm here because this is a really important summit. Uh, this is an area where uh, I think we need, to, we need to know a lot more about the opportunities that are available. And um, they, they've done a brilliant job at bringing together people, practitioners in the industry, um, the heads of the various um, organisations in Ireland that are involved Uh, in animation and uh, school students, college students um, and it really is a a place where there is there is huge potential I think for us to uh, to grow opportunity to spread the word as well because I think one of the problems in Ireland is that students uh, in school in particular school students aren't aware of the opportunities in this industry Uh, and young people are hugely excited um, by animation and uh, I I would really want to ensure that as Minister that um, we broaden the horizons for young people in our school system and indeed in our higher education system as well. We'll be posting more bits and pieces of those interviews as we go along, uh, doing more coverage of the VFX Summit on the Film Ireland website. I had a great time, so I'd recommend going next year. Just really exciting developments in that field. Well, from one field to another field of reviews let us cross the bridge of Segway and <laughs> begin by reviewing and survey our beautiful field uh, we have a movie about bridges we do, we do. Not? it's all about bridges uh, specifically bridges built of people yes it was bridge this- of spies is about a bridge made of spies all these spies who were captured by the Chinese government were taped together to go across a chasm taped? not cemented just taped no just taped not even and they're all there aid. wriggling going so they're alive. Tom Hanks uh, plays a US attorney who is sent to negotiate the release of these spies who make up this bridge. I'm sure his character had a name. Was it, Jim Donovan. Was it Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks plays Jim Donovan. He doesn't play by the book, but he gets results. That is what his name sounds like. But, um, but funny enough, the whole plot was that he plays too much of the book and therefore potentially jeopardize, jeopardize the results. The book being the U.S. Constitution. For yeah. you see, in this, in the actual story of this new film from Steven Spielberg, uh, it's 1957, it's the height of the Cold War, and they have a Scottish man living in Brooklyn, yeah. beloved Brooklyn, who turns out to be uh, from... Also, actually, just quickly, what you mentioned that. Did you notice that Brooklyn in this movie was all dark and dirty looking and realistically depicted what that place would look like in the 1950s as opposed to... You know, the other one. All bright and sunny and, you know, they're going to the beach and, yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I did just smile when uh, we were at the press screening for this. The word Brooklyn came on the scene. It, the I think we both giggled scene. a bit, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because um, this first scene has very little dialogue. It's all just visual storytelling about this uh, man. He's be- trying to avoid these FBI agents. They eventually catch him because it turns out this Scottish man living in Brooklyn is actually a Soviet spy. Mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is a insurance lawyer called Jim Donovan. But although he worked on the Nuremberg trials. He previously worked in not just criminal law, but really hardcore criminal law, if yeah. judging by his work at Nuremberg, which is just casually mentioned. Mm-hmm. So because uh, Americans believe everyone deserves a fair trial, they they he has to re- he's chosen to represent the Soviet spy who is guilty everyone thinks is guilty even the judge who's handling the case just is saying just this whole fair defense thing is just for show it's just a formality we're not actually want we don't actually want you 
to give him a fair defense, but Tom Hanks, his character, he's just too damn good at his job, and he gives this guy a fair defense because he believes in the US Constitution, he believes that in the context of the Cold War, holding to your values is, you know, what makes you better than the other side. When uh, Russia, when the USSR has um, American hostages of its own, that's when the possibility of a swap for the prisoners uh, comes into play, and Tom Hanks is the man to negotiate that based on how well he's defended this Soviet spy so far. So, th- I mean, that's the story. That's it's it, Spielberg's yeah. Spielberg's first movie since Lincoln. It's it com- Compared to his recent work, this is really strong. I really liked uh, Bridge of Spies. I quite enjoyed it. It didn't massively grab me, but it was... It was fine as a diversion while it was there. It there, there was no real points of real excitement or tension. I felt it was Tom Hanks. I think again, he's it's a, he's a pretty good choice for most things. But he's solid. He's he, really yeah, reliable. He really sells it. He's quite charismatic and and funny and sort of quite yeah. The, the funniness. You, you notice how he he was he used to be known for comedy acting before he started yeah. doing serious acting in this movie, which is co-written by the Coen Brothers actually, which definitely comes across in some scenes. Like he didn't know it just now, really? That yeah, oh, okay, that so, wasn't apparent at all. Coen Brothers and they have these moments where Tom Hanks is has these comic moments, which is you know like his old movies, I guess, mm. but funnier. And it kind of works really well. So it's not just all um, Cold War, bleak, grim. It's you know it's kind of like he's actually just a bloke, you know, doing his job, and he gets very confused, especially when he's in Berlin trying to negotiate the prisoner swap, there are moments of humor where he is just really confused by what's going on. And it's kind of funny because it kind of, you, you do need tension for this kind of story, but like a lot of tension can get quite uh, tiring so that you have these moments in between is nice. Uh, everything's, you know, and again, like a lot of Spielberg movies, it's good central performance from Tom Hanks, as well as Mark Rylance, who plays the, uh, Soviet spy. He's mm. great in this. He gives a really understated performance where he's just like a, he goes the best thing in it. Definitely. He he kind of gives this performance. There are characters like this in a few Spielberg movies. The kind of old, gentle, spirited man with a very calm demeanor. Um, like I'm trying to. There were characters in Munich like that. Ben Kingsley and Schindler's List is like that. This kind of person seems to come up in Spielberg's movies. Mark Rylance really makes it his own, though. It's not like. It's such a good performance, it's probably not going to win an Oscar, even though it should, because it's not crying yeah. out to be Oscar-nominated. It's not saying, look at me, I'm one of the year's best performances. It's him just doing this character. Oh, is that your social own impression? That was very good. Uh, anyway, we have this movie, which, you know, aside from the acting, a solid cast all around, you know, these two great central performances... It, it's also just the uh, Spielberg's craft in how well designed everything is, how well shot everything is. There are very long, fluid, continuous takes, but unlike, you know, recent films, perhaps one we'll mention later, but just sometimes filmmakers will just use the long take as a bravura exercise. Like, look how long this take is, audience. Spielberg I think the opening one was a bit showy. The one on the train station when he's being followed by the FBI. Because I also noticed mm-hmm. there was no music in that sequence, which obviously was there to heighten tension. But if there had been music, it would have been really funny because it kept just showing um, the spy run by. And then it was, the camera would just kind of slowly turn around to reveal yet more and more agents following him. Mm-hmm. So that every time he passed the camera, there was another person following him. And as he kept escalating, I think if there's any score there, it would have been inherently quite funny. You see, but even with simple scenes, you know of just dialogue it's shot way more interestingly by having a long continuous take and again it's not drawing attention to itself as a long take it's just like look these are the actors talking 
we want to cover what they're saying. Uh, so it's all done quite well. Uh, I, I will really say recommend that it tonally, there was some inconsistency I felt in that. Now that you said the Coen Brothers thing, it does make sense because there's a lot of bit of humour to be derived from the the false bureaucracy, would you say, of the way the Germans and the Russians are operating in Berlin. Like it's it's all these levels of people who are using fake names or pretend to be fake family members. Yeah. And it's, it's all paid for laughs. And that actually is very Coen's how you say it. But that jars, I felt, with just the schmaltz. Also, now, I know it's Spielberg, so of course there's going to be a lot of schmaltz in there. But bits of it are just obnoxiously horrible. There's ones you can do in the... Is it the what do you call the, the big fancy court in America? The Supreme Court? The Supreme court? court. I couldn't think of the name. That obscure institution, yeah. The fancy like, court. We call it a fancy court. This is where he's defending his... or No, he's making he's appealing, appeal. Yes, and But the, the speech he gives, I mean... I, I, the other thing, that's the other thing I was going to say. The score is pretty bad for this. Now, I, I was listening to him going, this can't be John Williams. And it's not, ultimately. It was Thomas Newman, wasn't it? I think it was Thomas Newman. Which makes sense because the opening bit does sound very Skyfall slash Spectre. But once he gets past that, it's all just mournful horns and just typical, the exact kind of music you'd expect over a patriotic man giving a patriotic speech in the Supreme Court about patriotism. And another thing from Spielberg's movies that happens a lot is a character will be giving a speech and it's quite a good speech and the actor is good, but the camera is tracking in on them and then the music comes in mm-hmm. and then it starts to get schmaltzy, even if it was like fine up until that point. Uh, it's, you know, you know, but like in this case, he's Tom Hanks is talking about like who we are is our best weapon against our enemy. That like, This is the whole driving thing with his character is that he's a bit of a goody two shoes. He wants mm-hmm. to make uphold the constitution. Um, I wonder how that's relevant for a modern day audience. But yeah, no, it's it's like... I, I I think like you know moments like that it it it's balanced I think with some acknowledgement of how morally complex. Uh, but that's the problem. There's the a, there's a lot of was. cynicism about both the Cold War and the U.S. due process system, and I feel like by having this really black and white man gives speech, man wins day crap in there, it somewhat undervalues the, the quite biting deconstruction of how not at all unbiased the American court system is and then even on top of that there's a lot of weird stuff with the structure of this movie I think the plot has very odd pacing where things just happen because they need to like when you first see the pilots you get maybe two minutes screen time with them tops and then suddenly he's just in the air and been shot down and captured I know. I thought. I thought they had a few moments where they, you know, build up the storyline about this pilot who crashes behind Soviet lines and then becomes the prisoner being negotiated for. I thought. I thought they were like they kept coming back to them, like a little bit. But I, I felt very sudden. Like I didn't actually mind because it would have just dragged the pacing down further had they gone into more detail of their lives. But it felt very sudden. And then even the way Tom Hanks is uh, trying to convince the judge not to give the death penalty to the Russian spy, and his reasoning is basically what of the plot that this movie happens and then the plot that this movie happens <laughs> that shows he frames because he's an insurance lawyer he frames it as it's insurance policy like what if the soviets capture an american and we need something to barter with so and the next day that basically happens um it's very i know i know that really did happen the probably the very but, next day or was it set enough. a few years in the future after that technically i thought it was like I it, starts, it was weeks i started i thought it starts in 57 and then it goes to 60 oh that um is. Yeah, because Spartacus is showing in a Berlin cinema in the background and just details like that. It's 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 general. Well, that was a Dark Knight stuff. Rises level sort um. of ill ill defined time <laughs> jump. If that was the case, I didn't notice that. Jump or at all. it demonstrates that Tom Hanks's character uh, knows his stuff, or he knows like, or he's just got good instincts. Maybe. I don't maybe. Know. I mean, I, in general, I did like it a lot. There was I enjoyed all the performances. I especially liked 
man who played character. Man who played character. Are you talking about the Soviet spy? Yeah. Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance. What a legend. He was really His performance actually in this is what I kind of wanted Christoph Waltz's performance to be Inspector, but we'll get to that. Very understated, but still great presence. There's also uh, one yeah. tiny performance in, do you recall, there's a bit when he gets to the, is it the German government or someone from the German government hmm? or something and they're trying to negotiate for a different prison transfer and there's this one character I can't remember I think his name was Ott I think he wrote yeah. Ott yeah. Ott uh, he was just fantastic he was this bizarre middle management hand yeah, wavy because... he knows he's in a very like tiny government department yet he's pretending he's the king of the world and it's it's so, it's very Coen Brothers actually yeah. and it, it's so short of a scene and it makes no sense to the rest of the movie really but it's really funny yeah, I mean, like I said, strong performances all around, even if some of them kind of veer into eccentric uh, Bond villain-esque territory, <laughs> they're just still kind of fun to watch, you know, and um, Tom Hanks anchors it, um, and yeah, no, I'd say, I'd say check it out. Um, it's decent, yeah, it's perfectly decent. There was there was a great movie out earlier this month, it might be gone by now, but I, I mean, you should going, really yeah. have seen it, because it's uh, called Tangerine, and this was another big hit at Sundance, and... Uh, I suppose the gimmick of this movie is that it was all shot on an iPhone because that saves a lot on the budget. You don't have to get permits to shoot anywhere and uh, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, okay, so, I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing about the movie, but that in and of itself isn't enough of a hook to, like, make you watch a feature film with it. Um, although although I will say, um, seeing it on a big screen, it actually does look fine, surprisingly. Yeah. The, the footage does look surprisingly well. So, any filmmakers out there who are struggling with the camera, if you have a smartphone, you could probably make it work, but... The other thing you need is a strong story that stands out. So in this case, Tangerine is about black transsexual prostitutes in Los Angeles on Christmas Eve. Well, that's not a story. That's a setup. I don't think actually there isn't. There intentionally isn't really a story. There's sort of four or five just things happening. There is definitely it's... a very clear goal from each of the main characters. So, oh yeah, so no, I'm not saying there's not that, but that's like that's that's screening one one. That's it. There's the very basic bones of a story but the story isn't important it, it's just about the story is very basic these people are. the story is very basic because these are very these are larger than life characters uh one of whom cindy is um just out of prison and she learns her boyfriend cheated on her so mm-hmm. her plan to get revenge is to find well, her out boyfriend slash pimp boyfriend slash pimp based uh, played by uh fans of the wire will appreciate this ziggy from season two who's ziggy Ziggy was the son of the guy who worked in the docks. Um, I do not recall season two of The Wire that well. But, you know, people say it's the weakest season. I think it's great, though. It's still... Like, you know, it was good. I just I don't recall specific minor characters. The Wire was sort of labyrinthine enough without remembering single characters from single seasons. Like, anyway. he's in... The, if that is of interest to you, he is in this. The rest of the cast are pretty unknown. The two leads are Kitana Kiki Rodriguez, who plays Cindy, and Maya Taylor, who plays Alexandra. Um, I should also really mention this 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 other character who, you know, after uh, Cindy goes on her quest to find out uh, who's the white bitch he cheated on me with, and uh, it storms around like Los Angeles, like tottering around in her high heels with the iPhone following her, with really good editing as well. It's kind of it's it's shot on an iPhone, but the editing a lot of it's like a music video, and that's very fast paced. It keeps the energy of the story. And on going. that front, actually, the soundtrack is really good. It's very. It's not all just R and B stuff. It, there's a lot of there's some indie rock and stuff in there. There's good variation music as well, but it's, it's a really well chosen soundtrack. Classical music, really bit of Armenian well. music because there's a subplot with an Armenian taxi driver. Um, just it, the dubstep annoyed me because there's nothing dubstep can't ruin. But like that was only like once or twice in the movie. Don't you recall the dubstep being there? 
Oh, good for you. Um, so uh, she she eventually tries to track down whoever this woman is. Turns out it's another prostitute who is a cis woman, Dinah, played by Mickey O'Hagan. She was great. She was a really good secondary character because for a lot of the time, mm-hmm. she just spends the time being dragged by her hair barefoot through the streets of Los Angeles by this uh, black trans woman who comes out of nowhere. And it's, it's, it's for a long time, she's just like crying and is all kind of... And not much going on. But once things kind of calm down I think actually I have, I, more of I, have character I took note across. of one quote that um, I think sums up the tone and the comedy of this movie and it was about her character one of the other it wasn't who's the other character it wasn't Cindy who's the other lead uh, the other the other character was Alexandra yeah, was I think Alexandra says to Cindy about third character are you kidding me yeah no, okay, let's come back to your point. Um, because what's happening with Alexandra's character, because I remember the film, is that she I has film, a sh- I can't remember names. She has a show coming up. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it, it's not enough. It, it's perfectly fine if you can't remember the names. I'm reading them off a phone right now. But yes. the fact that you, you can't even give me more detail about what a character... No, the character we were just talking about. Like, we are talking about Alexandra, Cindy, and the and blonde Dinah. one. The blonde Dinah. one is okay, Dinah. Dinah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. What I was saying was, I think Alexandra says to Cindy about Dinah, and I quote, you didn't have to Chris Brown the bitch, which I, <laughs> I like fail about the laughing at that one. That's a horrible line, but mm. it's incredibly funny in context. Yeah. And in another context, that could have been a real tacky family guy, like, oh, we're referencing this kind of joke. But here it feels it's really believable. Organic. Yeah, it's believable. But yeah, exactly. It's, it's believable. Organic. That would be a point of reference for these characters. Like, um, this movie almost feels like an alien thing because that particular subset of L.A. culture, especially to us little incredibly pale irish people must seem like another world and it it doesn't i appreciate that it doesn't actually try to i hate saying this set up the world of the movie too much it just basically throws you into it, it and does trust you to kind of keep going with it it might know it might make sense to you by the end but you just you can go with it and it's fine it throws you right in and it has a very relatable thing that happens with cindy's characters that she's been cheated on uh listeners you either would um have been through this yourself or know someone who has been through this you would know how intense that emotion feels but you've probably never seen a movie where the character's reaction to that predicament is to stomp around los angeles find whoever it was cheated on then drag them halfway across los angeles so it's just it's amazing to watch but like um there, there's uh, subplots alexandra has her own stuff going on this armenian taxi driver comes into the movie it all comes together in this kind of farcical way towards the end i say farcical yeah. in a good set like it is sort of farce comedy is is kind of style of it but it's also reminiscent of like i don't know like italian neorealist sort of mm-hmm. ken Loach stuff this is getting a bit wankery but it's kind of it, it, it's like that but with really modern energy with the really fast-paced yeah, i would agree with that but i think that's where my one problem that it comes from is that i i'm not sure if i like how it resolves purely because the comedy is very strong and like it isn't that it's got a lot of constructed jokes or anything it's all very organic just dialogue based and there isn't really a whole lot of set piece humor there's a couple like there's that bit when the guy vomits and taxi and stuff there's bits of they're trying to be like they're set up to be funny but the rest feels very improv and organic and very good. And still and funny. It's still very, yeah, very funny. To the point that I think it's almost, it gets kind of exhausting after a while. It, it could do it. it. No, the length is perfect, but if it's any longer, it would be problematic. But the ending, anyway. The ending brings things down to reality quite harshly, and I'm not sure if the film benefits from that or not. Because the farce sequence that you're talking about in the restaurant at the end, very funny. But it keeps going to the point that it gets sort of you kind of stop seeing the comedy in it and realize that people's lives are being ruined yeah here. they're quite their lives are quite hard and it gets you see, you see the thing about me that the reason it had an emotional gut punch for me uh, the ending is because it does get bleak but it doesn't like 
I, I hate movies that like dwell on grim bleakness, but mm. what they do with, with just like little moments, they they show like the humanity at in the, at the heart of the characters yeah. and like ways in which they care about each other and that kind of way. It's kind of like you know you know their story is going to continue after the movie's over, and that's that's not to say that, I mean the story is pretty complete, but it's just to say that these characters. They're going to carry on living their lives, and there'll be good days and bad days, good day, good moments and really bad, horrible well, it's moments. It's not but... that, though. What I found annoying was that it almost makes you feel guilty for having enjoyed the comedy. Because when you get to the end, and I'm not going to spoil it with specifics, but basically, like, a marriage has been ruined. And you, you see that result. Like, the last few shots of that particular character yeah, yeah. are just them sitting beside a Christmas tree in an empty house. And it's, it's intentionally quite uh, sort of a... A screw you to the audience i felt which isn't inherently a bad thing but the comedy was so strong and the tone was so light-ish up to that point that it feels a little annoying to switch it at the end and also i, I, I didn't like the way because this is two trans actors and they're both fantastic uh, but you don't think the, the fact that they're trans isn't a really important or mentioned that, that much that is great though good. characters there's nothing it, it but comes they undo up that in the story the it comes up in the story that you know but you know there's nothing about these characters that they like would have to have been trans it could have been just two cis women but they cast trans people in yeah, this role exactly that's but that's all fine what i mean is the film then doesn't seem to have the full uh its own convictions kind of entirely there because at the end it makes it contrives a scenario by they both take off their wigs and stuff and okay but like I, I think um, it sort of feels it, like but it's... again that was kind of like a, a touching moment and in terms of whether or not this undermines the humor or makes you feel bad about enjoying the humor I think what the movie shows is that people who have very tough uh, situation in their lives they will use humor as a way of getting through it and so in, in the case yeah, of this movie fine, it's yeah. hilarious because their life is very difficult but often that's what happens as a coping mechanism so I think the movie shows that beautifully and I just feel the ending slightly others its own cast I think I don't like that I, I think uh, you should definitely go see this movie oh, yeah. and Check make it up your it's own great. mind I, I really liked it um, if you're a fan of the show Broad City it's a bit like Broad City but as directed by who directed Enemy and Sicario <laughs> Uh, Denis Villeneuve, the um, yeah. yeah, oh, that is an interesting way of looking at it. Oh, okay. Um, did we have a movie then that is um, well in a similar vein? Next up, thematically similar yes. in a very broad sense, in that it also has LGBT issues at the heart of it, and yeah. this is very important to Ireland's recent history. Uh, Queen yes, of Ireland, Queen of Ireland. So, I mean, everyone's either seen this already or knows what it is, and I think if we're going to be cynical about this, and I, I choose to be because I am cynical. This movie is, in essence, just one massive victory lap for the Yes campaign. And as such, it's great. I think Rory O'Neill is a fantastically candid and very compelling interviewee. I, I could watch a whole film of just him just talking about his life. Mm. And similarly, Panty is obviously naturally an incredibly uh, exuberant and fun-to-watch screen presence. Yes. That said... I think they were a bit hamstrung by the fact that the Yes campaign even happened. I think the Pantygate um, fiasco, all of that, even though it, the weird thing is, like this movie probably wouldn't have gotten made or at least wouldn't have gotten as widely distributed uh, if that hadn't all happened. And yet, the fact that it was in production before that happened makes me wish I'd seen that movie because I think they would have found a more natural through line for it if they, had a, if they hadn't have been shackled to this one event. Because the film... That, that event, though, does provide a through line, I would have thought. I don't think and so. And a very nice ending. No, the ending is fine. I'm not sure. It doesn't feel narratively earned in that. I know it's a really weird thing of a documentary. 
You, you gay rights campaigners, <laughs> you didn't earn this moment of national no, no. They progress. earned it. I just think the way the movie depicts it as this big moral victory, it doesn't do enough to set up beforehand the hardship that they all went through to get to it. I feel like which it, they do touch on, but they perhaps didn't exactly. do enough. That's of, what like, I found the problem was. There's the first half of an hour of this jumps through so much, and it's really interesting stuff as well. I think you could have definitely extended the because the first ten minutes, I think it is. There's interviews with various uh, people who were around in Dublin before it was decriminalized like yeah. being gay and it, it's very quickly glossed over it's just mentioned to give a like a setting up kind of point people being murdered in parks like yeah that's just brought really up really briefly and about, moved on yeah about how horrible Ireland was and maybe is it a case of it focusing more on the positive recent stuff because a it's more positive and b it's more recent so that's kind of why no, that's an exactly yeah so like, I mean if they hadn't if they hadn't been shackled the marriage referendum yeah like, if they hadn't if they hadn't have had to bring it to that point eventually i think they could have spent more time on setting up what ireland was like before then there's this whole incredibly interesting seeming uh time when panty and is it candy was either drag queen yes we're in tokyo in, yeah and it looks insane but it's like it's only five minutes and it's gone and then the thing i think that could have been its own documentary was they're talking about the alternative miss ireland uh competition mm. and again that seemed like a really interesting institution that was there for 15 years but it's all just glossed over so quickly to get to the, the marriage referendum and the Pantygate. And once you get to that, like, that's dwelt on for ages. Which, again, I don't mind that it's dwelt on for so long. Because, yes, it's the important thing that everyone knows Panty and Rory O'Neill for. Yeah. But it just feels like that... You're already familiar with that? Or? You're already familiar with that. And also, I think there was more interesting things in the first half an hour that, if not, should have been... If they haven't... Oh, my God. My words are everywhere. If they could have either been their own movie or a longer part of this one. I feel like people knew what was going to happen in terms of they know what happened with the marriage referendum okay here's here's the way i'll try and succinctly put it if this was for an international audience who had no idea it is well exactly but who have no idea who panty is or like maybe know the name because there was some of that media hula blue they don't know much about ireland especially don't know about ireland pre the last 10 years so yeah. they wouldn't know about the criminalization they'll kind of learn thing. a bit but not exactly much i think problem. it's really it doesn't set all that up well i think it definitely would have if they hadn't had to get to that one narrative point if they hadn't like had a timer like on their heads kind of going, we have to get as far as Pantygate and then get to that as quickly as possible i think if they'd had a more organic and natural through line for it it could have been even better i still think it's good and it should definitely be seen i just feel like it, it's disappointing seeing what movie it could have been even though conversely that movie wouldn't have been made or at least wouldn't have been as widely distributed if all the others hadn't happened yeah because i mean with all that stuff you keep saying shackled, i'm done go ahead <laughs> you keep saying shackled to it but i thought no that was a pretty good way for it to go i think and i think it works quite well director connor horgan kind of like arranged the story as best he could while you know giving this um you know giving focus to all this recent stuff but i mean just shows um yeah no just just what a great figure uh rory o'neill is and even just you're you're saying it's a victory lap for the s campaign but there's like a moment in dublin great footage from dublin castle like that was a really happy day because it's it is in recent Mm. memory but the way like um panty is asked uh uh, what's your message to people who voted no and it gives a, a completely humble yeah, uh, sensitive yeah. answer and just like um you are already a legend but like you know fuck these people why are you still being so nice but, but like like he is and it's just um I, I think it captures a great moment just for this country that theocracy is dying it's it's just fatally wounded and it's dying out and long may that continue 
Indeed. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no. So, I mean, as a victory lap, yes, it's great. And I, I kind of, I, I just really enjoyed it. And it seemed to have done quite well in the cinema. Uh, along with, because uh, we were talking about Brooklyn's box office success. Also, The Lobster, an Irish co-production, did surprisingly well for a movie of its weirdness. And I did see some people complaining about, um, like, oh, it, like, look, here's how much money it made compared to, let's say, Spectre or something. And that's sad, given the caliber of the cast. But other people have gone, yeah, but it's a, a Yorgos, what's his last Yorgos name? Yorgos Lanthimos. I can't his name. Yeah, but like, what do you expect from a Yorgos Lanthimos film? Like that, uh, that kind of box office for one of his movies is incredible, mm. and deserved. That was great too. So yeah, I think of everything we mentioned so far, go see Tangerine, go see Queen of Ireland, go see Lobster, Bridge of Spies. Okay, um, you should definitely see this next movie, even though it was only out for a week. You, you have to find this movie because uh, this was another documentary that was fantastic. It might be my film of the year when I come back to it. Uh, so let, let me revisit that in a month or two, but I've a really, uh, I love this film that was called They Will Have to Kill Us First. It was directed by Joanna Schwartz and is about musicians in Mali. Uh, about two or three years ago, there was an uprising in the north of Mali where the um, sort of itinerant Tuareg people uh, staged an uprising because they wanted to secede from Mali. They were then joined by jihadists. Uh, created a lot of awful violence that people in northern cities like Timbuktu were fleeing to the south to the capital of Bamako. This is only becoming more relevant in the context of the refugee crisis and with, uh, like just this week, there was a hostage situation in the Bamako Radisson Hotel uh, because of jihadists. Uh, Mali is such a beautiful country. I'm that, like I, I am biased towards the subject matter because Mali produces loads and loads of great musicians <clears throat> I don't know what it is about this one country in Africa, but they have just loads of great music, including musicians featured in this film who basically have fled the violence in the north and they're they're living further south and they're trying to continue making music because what the jihadists in the north did was they outlawed any performance of music and the title They Will Have to Kill Us First comes from something when the musician says, like, that's what you would have to do to get us to stop producing music, stop playing music. And the music is fantastic. It follows a few different musicians, including one who's a Tuareg uh, musician who is treated as a bad guy because Tuaregs are associated with all the violence. There was another band called Songoy Blues who then toured, I think, with Blur or Damon Alburn from Blur and Gorillaz. But like, they, he got them like touring all the British festivals and follows them. But like that, that band, they they write a song about you know how people from Mali need to come back home. This is right in the middle of all this horrible violence. They're saying, if you've gone to America, you should come back home. Gone to Australia, you should come back home. And I just kind of think, in Ireland, we, we bitch about emigration or or people will just leave. Oh, this country, you know, I'm leaving. It's just like, this country is like war to dealing with these like Islamic equivalent of the Nazis. And like, they're saying, no, you need to come back to this country now and build it and make it a better place. Oh god, it was just uh, beautiful. And again, I really like Malian music, so you know, feel free to take this with a grain of salt. I'm raving about this movie, but I just thought this documentary was class, and it was only in the Irish Film Institute for <laughs> a week. The post saying it's class, Jonathan. Oh, I I think this will be my film of the year. So let me come back to that. Not they, mesmerizing or important or deep. No class. They will have to kill us first. I swear, you you need to check this out whenever it's on uh, home video release. Um, eh, maybe. Uh, there was another movie coming out this week, uh, The Good Dinosaur, and this is uh, 
Pixar's newest release. It was really good. Um, I have not seen Pixar's recent output. I'm feeling like I should catch up on it now, though. Like I haven't seen any. I haven't seen Toy Story three or Up or Wally or any of the ones people are raving about. I haven't seen Inside Out. So this review is coming from someone who doesn't have like a stake in Pixar being great or something. But the Good Dinosaur is. As uh, the president of Pixar described it, it's a story about a boy and his dog, except the boy's a dinosaur and the dog is a boy. Um, I saw the trailer and I thought, ugh, okay, nah. It's so clever, though. I mean, first of all, it comes of a short film called Sanjay's Super Team, which is, it's so sweet. It was just a really awesome, like, great, I like Color the title, design. but the, the word sweet in comparison to it makes me want to go new. Yeah, it was fantastic. And then Go Dinosaur starts, and how it starts is with the asteroids in space, and it's 65 million years ago, and mm-hmm. it's this brooding music, and the asteroid getting closer to Earth, and these dinosaurs grazing, and it's getting closer. And then it just whips by over the Earth, and the dinosaurs look up and see an asteroid go by, and they just go, oh. And then they just go back to eating. And then it says millions of years later, which is how they justify having humans and dinosaurs together. But it's done without any dialogue. Is the point? It's like there's That's so many funny. Okay. there's so many moments of the movie where, and and there is really f- funny dialogue. There, there's a really funny Triceratops character, I think, voiced by Maurice Lamarche from Pinky and the Brain. It's no Triceratops from Kung Fury, a movie we reviewed earlier this year. But it's um, you know, there's lots of really funny moments. <laughs> like they eat um unripe pl- or yeah rotten plums, and they get a trippy high from that. And mm-hmm. there's a really funny hallucination scene, which, like, at, at, at... <laughs> oh, my God, I, I love that kind of thing in kids' films where you get something that's just, like, over their heads, but it just still looks weird, so they laugh anyway. And um, there are moments like that that are kind of c- conveyed so well through the dialogue, but also other moments where it's just visual and and uh, storytelling, which is what Pixar does so well. And it's just... Um, I, I really loved it because, because the story was just so well told and everything and um the voice acting was great sam elliott plays this old t-rex and he just has that presence to tell it and oh god it's um it's really great so yeah and like i'm someone who's not into pixar's recent stuff i'm thinking i should especially after i was at the vfx summit and the president of pixar jim morris gave a talk and uh this guy has been like throughout the history of visual effects. Basically, at every point, he worked on Death Becomes Her and The Abyss and Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park and all these things before he ever went to Pixar. And um, and I actually, because I'd seen The Good Dinosaur, uh, I just asked him, uh, how do Pixar write such good screenplays? And he said it's because Pixar have a very unique setup in that they'll have three or four films in production at any one time. They can spend a lot of time writing something. They'll get like a very rough storyboard with dialogue and music over it, which is like, so they can effectively just watch the movie in full, but just a very basic version of it. They get the other three directors will come in. So like the guy who is doing Toy Story 7, you know, will come in and give notes on it. And that's how they refine the stories because they can actually do peer review like that. Whereas, I don't know, like, you know, you know, usually you write a script and then you film it, and if there are any problems, it's too late to go back and film it because that's too expensive. Because they have that setup in their animation studio, they can refine these stories really well. So on that basis, I think I will check out some more of Pixar's recent movies. Uh, do you have any recommendations or? Um, <laughs> is he done? He's done. Uh, he fell asleep. So while I was talking about how great Pixar are, basically tweet me um, any recommendations you might have. Um, what other move? So that is also did out. Did you this just week. do that? Okay. I anyway. Did. Moving on. Black yeah. So because we have that good dinosaur, Bridge of Spies out this week. Other movie out this week is Black Mass. But I think in terms of Oscar Beatty, yeah. So along with 
Bridge of Spies, and we'll get to Carol in a minute. Black Mass is Johnny Depp playing not a Johnny Depp character for once, and that is basically the only selling point of this movie. Although you know, I did to have... think it's funny that the trailers are like Johnny Depp's playing the the world's great or the most American what is it the the greatest gangster in American history. Oh, you mean like the last time he did that in Public Enemies, and all the trailers are the exact same thing. Funny that. Anyway. Yeah, no, Johnny Depp's kind of been off the radar since he was in this great 2004 film called The Libertine. After that, he kind of just went away for a while. Some other guy took his name and made really eccentric acting choices in all these weirdly bad movies. You're very so proud of that joke, aren't you? Back. I've heard it four times in the last two weeks. He's come back now for Black Mass, playing Whitey Bulger, who, from what I understand, he was an inspiration for Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed, but this was a oh, real-life really? person okay. who... Um, yeah, is just a gangster, and this. I mean, this movie is uh, uh, fine. I I, th- I, I think it was, it, thinking yeah. it was good. It's pretty okay. No. I, I b- think Bridge of Spies, like I tell Bridge of Spies, is also equally kind of fine, but that was better than this. Like this is not bad at any level. I didn't. I wasn't bored during it. Well, bits of it, but by and large, I think it's a perfectly enjoyable gangster mafia movie. It doesn't quite fall into that trap that everything else does of trying to be Goodfellas when you're making like a gangster movie. It initially, it seems like it definitely is. Because he has the same kind of voiceover and yeah. all that crap. But it doesn't follow the characters doing the voiceover, so it's fine. Depp is really good. I mean, I can't fault him any level. People have said the bald cap or the eyes are kind of distracting. I didn't think so. The eyes... They look weird, but they're not too distracting. They look weird, but there's added the intensity. Like, there's a sequence mm-hmm. when he's talking to... Is it Joe Edgerton's wife? or Joe Edgerton's wife, yeah. yeah. Joel Edgerton is really bland in this, though. He's not great. Like, uh, I feel like someone's like, doing a bad Jamie Renner impression, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, and there's your one from yeah. Why wasn't Jeremy Renner playing that character? No. Say? And you know, but like then Benedict Cumberbatch is in this, but he's doing a Boston I didn't like accent. Him in this. Yeah, it's really jarring seeing him no, play that kind is, of character. Yeah, seeing is the problem. If it was just if you heard like a radio play and you knew it was him doing that voice, I don't think it'd be a problem. Mm. His face is too Benedict Cumberbatchy, <laughs> and you can't really console it. Kind of console the voice. He's with the Johnny face. Depp's brother in this. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's a really in. weird. Um, just, he is Johnny, good. Like technically, on every technical level, Cumberbatch is quite good in this. But I can't take him seriously, and he's constantly a visual distraction of himself, and it's very odd. Johnny Depp's wife is your one from Fifty Shades of Grey, Dakota Johnson. She's barely in oh, this. She was good, actually. Um, yeah, she was good. But Black Mass has this other problem, which I, th- I think a lot of these crime movies have, which is. Like, they'll try to make out that the criminals weren't that bad or that what they were doing was kind of cool, but they'll eventually I disagree, get their comeuppance. Okay. And, uh, I mean, I suppose with this this one, they don't make out, like, Johnny Depp's a really cool guy or anything. They do get across how vicious and paranoid and violent he is. But even that, I'm, I always just kind of wonder what the fascination is with these kind of movies, especially when, by the end of the movie, there is never really, never really feels like a point to any of them. And, like, Legend earlier this year was felt like that it just had a really flat ending and all that movie seemed to be about was wouldn't it be funny to see tom hardy play the two types of characters he always plays uh who are nothing like the real life quay quay twins uh cray twins and but that is the point of these movies the point is that i think scarface is probably still the the go-to example of this goodfellas as well obviously and you see i i love goodfellas but even that movie by the end of it i'm just like what was the point of that like you're, you're... well it's, it's the very obvious point it's the crime doesn't pay thing is that even though especially like goodfellas and even this one they show a lot of success scarface too it's just it's always this rise to success it's very kind of charismatic psychopath which people just like and i can see why because they're they're always funny and charming and nice, but also when people piss them off, they'll just murder them. That's kind of funny or, mm. you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, aspirational. I mean, look, I suppose <laughs> moments like movies like this will stand on strong moments in the movie. 
and there are plenty. So, you know, I think... I think yeah. so. I actually thought, because every one of these kind of crime movies with this sort of central character who's played by some known actor always have a that scene, which is like the opening scene for that character where they're, they're always giving a monologue with something mm-hmm. seemingly inane, but that's meant to be a reference for their overall yeah. character. And the one for this one wasn't very good. It's Johnny Depp talking about peanuts. Not very interesting. However, there's a scene later on when it's him and Fifty Shades, lady, mm-hmm. Dakota Fanning, and they're Dakota trying, Johnson. Dakota, damn it! Oh god, I do not want to see Dakota Fanning in that. Series. Almost got a name anyway. right. Okay, Dakota Johnson and Johnny Depp at a breakfast table with their son, and yeah. he's given the son a speech. I can't write something along the lines. Oh no, so. it's a really funny scene because he's really like funny, he got in really trouble good. in school, and he and he's telling the son, "Now, son, the lesson here is that you got caught." So next time you do something, don't get caught. That's the moral here. And the wife's like, no, that is so not the moral. And he's just like, don't listen to your mother, kid. Listen to it. So yeah, that was, that was a great scene. Because <laughs> I felt like a better summation of his character than the peanut scene did. And I think that should have been the opening. Yes, yeah. The opening scene for his character. Uh, but all on the whole, I mean, I do think it's fine. It's really, it isn't boring. And there are some quite nice montage Scarface-esque, excessive booze and ladies and clubs sort of sequences Johnny Depp is actually genuinely the best I've seen him in probably a decade or more yeah I'd say he's, be- he's best since The Libertine which is a good movie and it was around the time of the first good. Pirates of the Caribbean which I-, I still think is okay I like but... the second one more than the first one but yeah that's irrelevant so um, I, yeah. mm, oh. no but so like to, to sum up with this movie I think like it's pretty str- Joel Edgerton drags it down because he's just Abyss. annoying in general but um I, yeah, no, I, th- I think it's pretty good. Ooh, you know who else would have been good as Joel Egg- Egerton's character? Mm. Nathan Fillion. Or I is think, he just too Nathan Fillion-y? Is that the problem? I think People it could be the Cumberbatch problem. Like, I, I think he actually, now that he said he would have been really good in that, but I think he's, he's either too good at being slimy or too good at being charismatic that you either wouldn't take him seriously or you'd take him too seriously and you'd hate him. I think Joel Egerton, you're kind of... He's slimy and he's horrible, and you you kind of kinda, meant to be. Yeah, so. you kind of hate him, but you don't mind hating him because he's kind of pathetic. So you kind of don't feel bad for hating him. Where I think with uh, Fillion or even like Renner, you'd be like, oh, I like this guy though. Whereas Egerton just he always looks weird. Mm. He's really, really likable. I, I don't know. Um, he but is I mean, probably the weakling in this though. We well, have problems with this movie, but it's pr- it's on the whole though, in spite of its problems, it's pretty solid movie. It's so, solid, but yeah. probably still the weakest thing out this week. You know, I, yeah, and no, I was I was going to leave this till the end, but I reckon now, yeah. So like, out of the three sort of big Oscar bait things, we have Bridge of Spies, Black Mass, and Carol. I'd say Black Mass is the weakest. Um, Carol, Bridge of Spies second, and now Carol would be the best of them. You know what? That, that's yeah, that's probably a fair uh, summation. Although I would say, I mean, these are three very different kinds oh, of yeah. movies. Carol, and, okay. I mean, let's talk about Carol compared mm-hmm. to Bridge of Spies. Say, I think um, Carol is a lot more slow paced. It's more like melodrama, old style kind of thing. Set in the 1950s, like our beloved Brooklyn. Um, if you'd prefer something where the, the bit more high stakes, bit more tension, political Any intrigue, stakes, Tom Hanks really. making inspiring speeches, then Bridge of Spies would be your thing. Carol, though, is directed by Todd Haynes, and it's about Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara playing a, a lesbian couple in the 1950s. Originally, it wasn't going to be Rooney Mara; it was going to be Mia was Mia Wasikowska from Alice in Wonderland, and. I think as an actress, I prefer her, and mm-hmm. I, I think I would have liked to have seen that more, her and Kate Blanchett, acting in this movie. I think it would have been a good movie, but the dynamic between the two characters would have been completely different, whereas uh, Rooney Mara, who like has never really impressed me as an actor, she yeah. is good in this. She she does make it work, and the the dynamic between the two of them is great, but it just kind of... and uh, like Yes, this applies to any movie. Who you cast in the roles is going to affect the movie, but it would be... It's just interesting to think about that if it was Kate Blanchett but another actor 
um you know, you know how different would the movie be on the whole it works pretty well because it's all about these like subtle moments between them re- like real subtle development of characters and it it works really well. I was very surprised at this because I went into it thinking... Because all I'd seen was the poster, but the poster is pretty much enough to kind of give you the idea of what, exactly what this film is. Like Brooklyn, if you see the poster, like, well, I know what this is. And also Kate Blanchett, I think she's great. Like, generally, she always is. But also, it's the Meryl Streep problem. I'm really like, oh, okay, it's going to be a Kate Blanchett performance. That's she's so fine. vampy in this. You know, she has a really deep voice and, like, this beautiful 1950s look but she just but wasn't there a scene where she like she gets a gun out of a car and just stomps <laughs> towards into a bedroom uh, yeah and it's like scenes like where it's just kind of like um oh what if like um helen mirren did that or just, there's somebody who's just so yeah. cool and has such great presence in the way they're playing the character that when they do a little thing it's like oh my god that's well that was amazing. my worry it's though like, that it, this film would just be like oh it's just a you know a quote-unquote like registered trademark cape banter performance and it, it looked mm. like one of those it looked well it looked like brooklyn for all intents purposes that was my worry this is way better than Brooklyn and way better than most other things out this week. It's, okay, but it, it's, a, it's a romance set in 1950s New York or, or mm-hmm. around thereabouts. Uh, what, what did this movie have that Brooklyn didn't? Don't say a story. What, what, what was it that made this story work better than Brooklyn's? Steaks. Yes. Steaks because delicious, Kate Blanchett... Delicious, steaks. Kate Blanchett is playing... Is a mother. Um, her husband is... She's divorcing her husband, Harge. but she has a daughter... <laughs> Which is the, the husband's the name perfect is perfect ex-husband dickhead name is Harge because <laughs> every time she gets upset she goes oh damn it Harge is like oh, oh it's that Harge such a nineteen fifties Pulp Fiction name and there was actually oh god there were all these like um, lesbian Pulp Fiction novels in the nineteen fifties and sixties and just I know that because I saw the cover of one on the internet once uh-huh. and it was called Satan was a lesbian and it's like the devil <laughs> smiling as like a husband is like shielding his wife from like a lesbian <laughs> and he's like oh, no and it's so I mean this could have devolved into that it, it yeah. could have gotten like very um, like pulp and trashy it doesn't though it's so elegant and sweet and it's I, I know you hate the word sweet but it, it's just it's it, um, it it's here, really classy movie but I think yeah. kind of in keeping with Tangerine it does a great job of not trying to you know really throw it in your face that look we're trying to be inclusive and we're doing things with you know in this case gay people and it just it's all incredibly organic and it all feels mm. incredibly natural and fine and I know I've I, also heard I hate the fact that I have to say that out loud like that's stupid I can't, but that's what I mean like all these Hollywood movies it's about like 10 years ago if someone was playing if someone of Blanchett's caliber was playing you know a gay character in a movie that would be a big deal thing mm. like whereas I don't think it is now which is really good but it's it's just refreshing that everything about it felt incredibly normal god the words I hate everything I'm saying oh, okay. <laughs> I mean like I've, I've even heard like LGBT critics be quite positive about this movie is that it's a lesbian love story but it kind of avoids the pitfalls of the male gaze that mm-hmm. so many lesbian movies have. And, I um, mean, we're both men, so we can't really comment on that. But if any lesbians I will say, as a, a man, I think there was some male gazing in there a bit, but nowhere near as much as there could have been, definitely. And also, Todd Haynes, it, the director, is a gay man. Uh, so, I mean, that adds an extra level of complexity to it. Uh, but, I mean, obviously, it's subject matter that he's familiar with. He's, he's done similar stories before with movies like Far From Heaven and yeah. stuff. But this is like... Um, you know, it, it works so well. There is a scene where Rooney Mara gets out of a car and throws up. And I, I remember thinking, she's pregnant. No, wait. Because <laughs> like, like, that's how invested you get in the story. Because like you said, there are stakes. If she gets ex- uh, if they get exposed in this like highly homophobic society, way mm-hmm. more than ours, you know, that's like a huge stigma for them. 
but especially for Kate Blanchett, who could lose her daughter because of you know the public morality yeah. of the time. Because that's why I think the Brooklyn comparison works. Because for all intents and purposes, this is a, this is a love triangle again. It's between Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Rooney Mara, and Harge. Harge played whereas, by Kyle Chandler quite well. So. Yeah, he was actually very good as being a massive dickhead husband. <laughs> but I liked how his name was bigger in the credits for some reason in the opening credits. I didn't even like, find that. Then it's like Kyle Chandler as Harge. <laughs> Um, but, but like, yeah, because so like, in Brooklyn, with, um, there's nothing can go wrong. I mean, okay, obviously she might get a bit sad about one of her boyfriends. Yes, but this one is like, no, no, actual bad things will happen here, and exactly, yeah. But also, what I really appreciate about this movie is that it doesn't end in a really incredibly saccharine way. Okay, it does on paper. You, it seems like everything ends relatively well, but, but it ends in an unusual way for this kind of movie. Yeah, without there's a lot of caveats. Happens. I mean, everything there's a. It's nice and complicated, though. Exactly, that's what I mean. There's loads of, like, yes, but... It's a happy ending asterisk, you know? It's, it's, oh, yeah, that that thing did work out, but... And, you know, the thing with the daughter did kind of work out, but it's all... Mm. Everything's built on compromise. Yeah, so, I mean, to see see what, just how murky it gets, you'd have to go see this. So, like, it probably is the strongest of the, uh, like, Oscar bait. And we say say Oscar bait knowing that... It usually has a negative connotation. Mm. Some Oscar bait movies are really good. Yeah. It's just that typically, it just it it this often movies that get lots of Oscar nominations are bland, and that's quite frustrating. And, and there are movies that are definitely geared to exactly you know, get yeah. Oscars. They seem like made almost cookie cutter, factory made for. Yeah. And this one really had that vibe off it from the the casting, from the opening sequence, even when it's this really long, elaborate tracking shot through New York. And the scores mm. is really mournful, swelling, low score. And then, yeah, and then you see the, the titles produced by Harvey Weinstein. I was like, oh, Jesus, this is going to be horrible. But almost immediately, it is a, it, it's really engaging very fast. I actually, I do like Rini Mara quite a lot, generally. I don't think she's amazing, but she's very good, and she was great here. I was never impressed by her, but she has impressed me in this, so, mm. yeah. I mean, I, everyone's saying like that this is her movie, and she'll get the Oscar for this. But Blanchett, like, I, again, she didn't necessarily do anything that she hasn't done before, or she didn't do anything better than usual but for some reason it just it all clicked here really well and she was incredibly engaging and just yeah she was fantastic in this they both were mm, and and you know it's not too there it does interesting things the story moves along well mm-hmm. it does some things in an unconventional way yeah it's like weird and, like uh, david lynchian almost dreamlike just little segues between sequences where they'll be in the car and the lights go all weird like obviously not the damn it's just an editing effect but the music will be like a slow motion fairy tales it's all this really weird little choices that really elevate the drama so the story moves along once you get into it you know if you can yeah. sort of view it with the right mindset it probably is the best movie out this week even though like they're, they're all pretty solid mm-hmm. like good dinosaur is great and uh i even feel Black like Mass um, and spies are pretty good but yeah no carol just, if you had to pick one i suppose like, yeah but even like aesthetically i think there's a lot of sort of like her department store that she works in at the start when you're looking at it it's it's this horrible like soviet block gray wasteland and they're all given their little christmas hats and it's the only bit of color in the room and you go to the store the main floor and it's all this really sickening green and every apartment she seems to go into every house she seems to go by it's all this weird like sickly exorcist green puke color <laughs> and it just feels like a really nice indictment of american consumerism in the 1950s which is what a good melodrama should be it should have layers and stuff happening brooklyn mm. brooklyn so at least now, no, no, but it especially helps to reflect on Brooklyn now that we have a similar movie to compare it to, mm-hmm. but it's a much stronger movie. And it's because of just very simple things about like, are there, is there something at stake in your story? Is it yeah. more than just, are they going to feel bad? Or is that, you know, like, <laughs> so like I was saying, could something been more at stake in Brooklyn? But um, Well, I feel like in terms of comparisons of Brooklyn, our final film for review this, this episode uh, also merits comparison. 
been a long time coming. I feel like this has been out for years at this point because it, it's almost a month since it came out. I've seen it for some reason three yeah. times since then. If, if you want to talk about high stakes, this movie goes for high stakes <laughs> to a ludicrous extreme. I don't uh, think it does. That's probably part of the problem. It has the world's, uh, the, the film industry's biggest explosion, practical explosion in oh, history. Yeah. You know what we're talking about. Yes, it is Spectre. Special executive for counterterrorism, revenge and extortion. Except it no longer counts for that, so never mind. Well, this is a special episode for uh, counteracting and tempering Richard's enthusiasm. Well done. Go with that on your own. Uh, we came up with it together. Richard and oh, I are the actually... segue, it hurts. Richard and I are, have started our own separate podcast called Quantum of Friendship. And this is a podcast uh, we came up Don't with worry, together. we know the name is terrible. Um... But we are reviewing each Bond movie because Richard has seen all of them and loves them, whereas I have only seen a handful. And I didn't realize how strange Bond movies were until I was seeing bits of earlier ones. And I went, oh, I'm actually interested in seeing them now. So at the moment, we are going through the Craig era, and then we're going back to Dr. No, going through them one by one. We are on iTunes, so please subscribe to us and uh, have a listen because we'll be watching each Bond film. Then you can listen to us afterwards. It'll be quite fun. Anyway, back to your regularly unadvertising program. That's, I think, why Spectre feels so exhausting to me to think about. Because we already did this sort of, but we it's have a- okay. I mean, I feel like there's this has probably been maybe the most hyped Bond film ever. It feels that way to me, anyway. It's there's been so many months of speculation. There's been so many months of everyone because Skyfall did so well, and no one seemed to expect to do that well. The fact that they got like the whole team back together again, like Mendes and everything. It, it, there was so much expectation on this one. They're they're bringing back Spectre, of course, which is from the old. Connery films, they were maybe doing Blofeld, no one was sure. And it comes out, and it's okay. And I think that's almost the worst thing you can say about a Bond movie, because <laughs> either they're really good, or they're so bad, they're fascinating. But that's why I think it merits comparison to Brooklyn, because much like Brooklyn, it's only just okay. Neither film res- deserves the really positive reviews they're getting, and neither film deserves the box office they're getting. And yet, to their respective audiences, in Brooklyn's case, it's Irish mammy porn, I think someone said, and I totally agree with that. And in Brooklyn's case, or Brooklyn's case, Spectre's case, me. Yeah, I think the Bond fan of me liked it. This is the thing. I think it's a really weird film to qualify because Bond fans will get more out of it than, you know, the layman will, but they're more likely to be annoyed about it because of all the stupid stuff it does with the continuity retro, the the retconning of the new continuity and the Spectre forcing itself in, it, in the events of Spectre unfold we learn that the events of the pre three previous Daniel Craig movies yeah. were orchestrated uh, which is just a retroactive like if if that had been planned back exactly, in 2005 yeah. as a as a point they were getting to fine but the thing is and you were explaining this to me when you were convincing me to do a Quantum of Friendship available on iTunes uh, you said God's that sake. each Bond movie uh will kind of reflect what movies are being made at the time. Yeah. So Casino Royale was like Batman Begins, mm. Quantum of Solace is like a Bourne movie, Skyfall was the Dark Knight, uh, or and going back earlier, Moonraker is like Star Wars, yeah. and so on. Like So this is trying to cash in on Marvel, Absolutely. and the way they just like reference all the time and have all these Easter eggs in it. But the thing is, I think, on the one hand, that totally worked. Because what people, what every studio that's trying to do their own Marvel thing, be it this ridiculous Universal Monsters shared continuity, or whatever Dan Aykroyd saying about doing a Ghostbusters universe, like Christ whatever about these things the thing these people want isn't well they want the box office obviously but the main thing is they want the organic marketing because Marvel is 
pretty much the only one doing this properly. I think DC is getting there as well. But it's uh, this whole idea of... Re- Star Wars is trying to do a similar thing because it's not just having episodes yeah, 7 or okay, these other movies true. in production. But also it's all about speculation. But Marvel movies, like the trailer comes out and the trailer then becomes the most talked about thing in all the internet blogs and all the sort of the entertainment websites because it's always, let's, let's deconstruct it and go through it like frame by frame and find all the Easter eggs. That's what they were trying to do with this to the point that Spectre's first trailer, which I always found really funny, is really weird and it, there's no action in it. It only makes sense to Bond fans. I think the mis- their mistake was thinking that Bond fans are as numerous as Marvel fans, which I don't think we are. But it's like you said, it was clever. They mentioned personal effects from Skyfall. Yeah, so they the audience Skyfall will know. Five seconds. Oh, Skyfall. It. But like, is anybody thinking? Oh, the Skyfall film was good. Is there a new film in the Skyfall series? Like, people know generally what Bond is, though. Is this? I mean, is it that I big a problem? What do. this movie was doing? Like, well, no, that bit was fine. But that was only the first trailer. Then, as more trailers came out, especially the the main one, which had the on Her Majesty's Secret Service theme playing during it. So that was the moment where I know I myself as a fanboy basically cried with pure joy himself, inside myself. It's a weird sentence. Don't, well, think, don't think about that too much. But we get to the film and it's... It's I mean, I think just okay. There, there are really good performances. Enough. I think Leia Seydoux is... is um, a relatively strong Bond girl. That's not a high bar to meet, but uh, you know, the, the, I think again, in the modern era, I think in the modern era, it is a high bar because we had Ava Green and we had Olga Kurylenko, who's very strong Bond girl. Actually, yeah, but yeah. then we're kind of high. I mean, admittedly, it seems like they basically cast Seydoux and went, "Look, watch Ava Green's performance, Casino Royale. Just do that again, but a little bit different, because that's basically <laughs> which, the character you're trying to be." Which led me to a theory about her character's true identity, which then turned out not to be true. Well, so of I was course, it wasn't true. <laughs> I really wanted her to be Ava Green somehow with plastic surgery and I just because I love Ava Green I just freaked out at the thought that that might happen and it doesn't so it was never going to you see but this seems symptomatic of how they could have done cleverer things or cleverer twists so they don't clever, really... Been really dumb like, oh, no, I would have sorry, it. sorry. <laughs> okay no I take that back it would have been utterly stupid but amazing um <laughs> but it's more just kind of the movie plays out pretty bland I mean like I mean Although Ralph Fiennes is good and Dave Bautista is hilarious as the henchman. He's such a He's good, good presence on screen and the fights between him and Bond are really good. And uh, This is kind of the problem with the overall movie. Bautista is sort of uh, emblematic of it because the promise of Skyfall at the end was that the next Bond film would be classic Bond. And then when they got the rights back to Spectre and Blofeld and all that, and it seemed like that's what they were... But that is, they literally call it Spectre. That is what they're doing. Hmm. And yet, they can't seem to fully reconcile this notion of making a quote-unquote realistic Bond movie, which Craig Zero sort of started off, but then also trying to, for all intents and purposes, continue the Brosnan era, which are these kind of slightly heightened, goofy, Mm. slapsticky things. And there's a lot of moments in this that, the moments that you would quote-unquote call um, Martin Freeman moments, which I, I hate that you've... Planted this it's idea just in my sometimes head. Daniel Craig will do a slightly comic scene, and his mannerisms just get a lot like Martin Freeman. It's, I just that's disgusting. You don't have to see it. I see it. You know. Well, no, I can't not see it now. But <laughs> I still don't fully agree with it. But anyway, those moments felt like they were written for Pierce Brosnan, and that's fine. But it doesn't really work, especially with the fact that they're trying to tie so heavily this movie to the first two. Well, okay, the first one Craig movie, anyway. And yet. It, I don't know. I'm, I'm confused about my own... I've seen this three times now, and I'm still confused how I feel about it. I think... I, I only saw it the once. Can I ask you whether mm-hmm. the pacing issues get better? Because that was okay, my thought yes. the first time, that it's so slow-paced. The scenes take forever. Yeah. Like, and it takes them forever to get to something. There's, there's a scene in the trailer where he visits Mr. White by an Austrian lake... And that whole scene is like done in the trailer in 20 seconds, but in the movie, it's like him going into the cabin and looking around and mm. there are birds. He looks around a bit more. He finds him. 
He comes upstairs. They sit down, and you know what? I mean? It's just it takes seven minutes to do the what the trailer got across so much quicker because you know what's coming. It just gets really frustrating to watch. But even then, it just kind of I thought it was really slow. So I mean, when you're watching it again, does, does that come across? Like, like, Weirdly, not as much. Like I know for the review I wrote for this very site, I did criticize the pacing quite heavily. I I think upon a second viewing, I'm gonna blame that on just sheer hype that I was I was watching it like every second was basically a minute in my mind. I was watching it so intently. But I think to a general audience, it's probably still a bit slow. Uh, I think you could probably lose it quite long. 10 minutes. It is very long, but it's not that much longer than Skyfall was, and yet it feels significantly longer. I think it's just... None of the locations are... Like, Skyfall had like quite decent length sequences in, let's say, Shanghai or London. This movie is in Rome for maybe 20 minutes. It's in Austria mm-hmm. for maybe even less. But the fact that it keeps jumping around so much actually makes it feel longer, despite the fact that those sequences are quite short. And I think that the entire pacing issue can be summed up. I think Mendes, I don't know how he did it, but he convinced us all in Skyfall he can direct action scenes. I now don't think he can, especially not car chases. The car chase in Italy, which was probably the thing I was looking forward to the most, is a bit shit. It's, I think the problem is that it's all shot from these very distant kind of wide-angle shots. And it's a lot of, kind of long takes of the car's driving. And he's on the phone to Money Penny for these like brief moments of comic relief. Exactly, which, which you know, Money Penny deserves more. Th- or I don't know if Money Penny does, but Naomi Harris does because like she's great. She had a lot more airtime, screen time in this than I thought she would. And I, I, that's the one thing I will give it credit for. It, it does ruin its own pacing, but it does a great job of sort of extending the screen time for like Rory Kinnear and Ralph Fiennes, Naomi Harris, Ben Wishaw, Wishaw, Wishaw. I keep hearing Wishaw. People say it. Yeah. Would you say Wishaw, Wishaw? <laughs> I we don't shall, care. Shall, 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 um, shall. Andrew Scott is in this as well. Oh, yeah. He's playing totally another antagonist, and but he wants to sort of have more aggressive surveillance of citizens and more invasion of privacy. And uh, Ralph Fiennes, I refuse to call him Rafe. I, I don't care how posh he is. He's Ralph. Ralph Fiennes and him have these scenes back and forth where uh, Ralph Fiennes argues the kind of pro-Edward Snowden line mm-hmm. and then Andrew Scott is the villain who's going like oh no you can't trust democracy you can't trust people you know, blah, 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 blah. and it's like so that, like it's very heavy handed even though I, I really do appreciate they're trying to take a progressive stance on yeah. something while the UK government is in fact introducing <laughs> really draconian uh, invasion of privacy laws to help snoopers uh, snoopers charter I think they're calling it this year um, I do appreciate that Big Bond movie is trying to take a progressive stance on it, but of course it's, uh, yeah, just some of the some of the scenes with them back and forth, it just gets very kind of like, oh, this is the part where the characters talk about the issues I play with this socio-political... So, I mean, stuff like that can even just drag the pacing of the movie as well a bit. And I think there's, yeah, there's... I hate, and he I hate doesn't s- entirely work as a villain either. He gets very because I know that's kind of his style anyway. And Wait, he's great Scott in Sherlock. Oh, Scott, Scott yeah. because he's he's great as Moriarty in Sherlock, but he kind of does a similar thing, especially towards the end. And you know, it just doesn't I, feel right. I, sort of things. So. That's the other thing. It it it's, it feels like it should have been two movies almost, and yet it only feels like the first half of a movie because, especially with if if you know the plot to Honor Manager's Secret Service. And you can see the plot points they sort of brought up. This one ends in a way that feels like the sequel will be the second half of that movie. So I, I don't know how this was written. I mean, if you actually go back to the Sony hacks and read the leaked emails about the screenplay issues of this one, it was a bit of a mess in the get-go. The first two acts seemed to be fairly solid, even though I think the only decent stretch of the movie is probably the last act, which was written last minute. But yes, I suppose Christoph Waltz, we should probably talk about. He's My big worry with him when he was cast was that he's such an obvious choice for a Bond villain. And I was worried he'd just do the Christoph Waltz performance, which he sort of does. It, yeah, pretty much. But there's still moments where I think he's subtle enough that it it, it almost works. There's bits when he's quite menacing, 
And I think he can, yeah, he can always be menacingly menacing in a Tarantino movie when he's smiling and laughing at people. And he's still menacing doing that here. But I think there's a few moments of genuine menace which really work. But he's not on it. He's not in the film very much, and the reveal is expect anyway. I won't say any more of that. But like yeah, no. But like we're comparing it to Mark Rylance in Bridge of Spies, like a much more oh yeah, uh, that should have been strange performance. Like that kind of thing can be way more unsettling. Cause, um, Instead of Christoph Waltz going cuckoo, yeah. Because if it's just if if it's unassuming, but they have that presence, um, you know, then that almost sticks in your mind more than mm-hmm. Christoph Waltz just kind of being how he usually is in other movies we've seen him in. Even though there's moments where I think he is great, like he's there's a bit near the end, he has like he's face to face with Bond, and they're kind of looking at each other, and they're sort of quipping a bit. And then I actually think it might have been a flubbed line, but they left it in where he's staring incredibly intently basically at the camera and he just cracks up laughing and walks out a shot and it feels like some an actor that just sort of lost their will and their nerve in the middle of a take but it works really well with his version of, of that character we just spoil it I think everyone knows you see I, I don't know how I mean what, what is our reflection on the movie because I mean we, we we for Quantum of Friendship available on iTunes we stop saying this. that and we have a two-part review of it. So if you want to listen to that, we talk about Spectre at even greater length. I think we come to more definitive conclusions than we do here. Okay, I, here's I just my, think... my three-part recommendation of this movie. If okay. you're a hardcore longtime Bond fan, there's a lot to like, but there's a lot that'll annoy you. If you just enjoyed Skyfall and you don't really care about Bond aside from that, you'll probably enjoy this perfectly fine because there's some really good action sequences. It all looks great. Daniel Craig is definitely getting better at doing shtick. But he's better doing it in real life and in interviews than he is in the movie. So I think if you're just a fan of Skyfall, this is a pretty good but not as good follow-up. If it's a general audience question, I think it's too slow, it's too boring. It relies too heavily on its own made-up continuity, which only exists because of this movie, to really make any kind of sense. Like It doesn't actually make sense to me, having seen it three times. There's one particular plot point which is absolute balls. It's, it's nonsense. But it's a solid three stars maybe would you go that far even it's really middling and that's very annoying um hmm the song gets better upon listening to it more time there was it that much that sam smith song gets better um yeah sam smith is a successful singer who does the theme song for a bond movie i think the world owes james blunt an apology um i he wouldn't have been a weird choice in the 90s after james blunt thinking about it I, I don't think it was when I was watching it I didn't think this is a three star movie but I think it's in hindsight thinking about yeah. like how long or slow paced it was um, no I, I I think check it out because there are good bits in it uh, and I say check it out like it's Tangerine like it's a small movie that you know needs to find a bigger audience you know it's 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 Bond so you, you I think you kind of know what you're getting into it's just that Bond movies tend to dip in not, not even quality but just kind of in tone like depending mm-hmm, on what mm-hmm. approach the director takes so I mean this is Sam Mendes' second time doing it. Uh, I really liked Skyfall, and I'm, I, I mean, I thought this was okay. It'll be interesting to see whether or not Craig does one uh, more movie or not. Like, I feel they'll definitely try to get him back for one more, because that ending, you could do it with another actor, but I feel like you kind of you need him just to finish off that particular thread. But I, I don't know. I think he does seem pretty exhausted, pissed off, heat-filled mm. towards all enterprise. Yeah, you should look at his the press tour he did for this because he speaks candidly quite often. It's very funny. And it's, it, yeah, no, it's so refreshing. And, like, he, he's being asked, like, uh, what can men learn from James Bond? And he's like, nothing. He's misogynist. Yeah, he's he's really hard. He's a fantasy, you know, just, like, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, so fair play to Daniel Craig. And, and, and as always, he's, he's, he's a very good Bond. Um, 
But, you know, you can hear us talk more about Bond on Quantum no, of stop, Friendship. Stop now. Do subscribe <laughs> no on more iTunes. And if not... Uh, we'll... Listeners, I had no part in this. This is all on him. You were the one who started the feckin' podcast. And, you know, we're on that. We're also uh, here on Film Ireland. So we will be back with you soon. Uh, so well, do no, please no, join quickly, us. Quickly, let's do... What would you... Of the list of things we've reviewed today, what was your recommendation? Pick one. They will have to kill us first. Okay. I'm sort of torn between Tangerine and Carol. I'd probably say Tangerine, but it's Tangerine, gone Tangerine. from cinemas, so let's say Tangerine's Carol. a close second. And, yeah. Tangerine, good dinosaur. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, if, if I had to pick absolutely one, they will have to kill us first. A really underlooked, overlooked? Mm. Overlooked, underrated documentary ah, from this year. So hopefully you'll get Oscar buzz, or it'll at least be in my best films of the year. I'm just sad, because I fully expect at this point of the year to... Because when Skyfall came out, that was my film of the year. You know, it's not the best film of that year, but it, it it is to me. And I felt like after a full year of excitement and hype and wearing my own little Spectre ring out and thinking, <laughs> this is going to be the best film ever. And it just it just wasn't. And I'm so disappointed and disheartened. And go see Carol. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. I think we understand each other. <laughs> Grow up, 007.